0: Hey, welcome back to the Gutology podcast, Ollie here. And thank you for your amazing response for the first two episodes of the season. If you get a chance, head on to iTunes and click rate and review. It will really help the show access other people who want to optimize their gut health. Thank you for your support so far. There's also specialized clinics on specific topics like Crohn's, um, PMT, uh, diverticulitis on our YouTube channel right now. Just search for Gutology. All right, let's do it. Welcome to the Gutology Podcast. Episode three in our six episode series one, uh, we're bringing the science behind naturally healing and nourishing your gut. There is so much information out there, even more in the last two years than there's ever been, but it's really hard to sieve through it all and find the information that's important to you and the stuff that's also backed up by... By clinical studies. So, uh, my name is Ollie Gallant. Uh, if you see your first episode, uh, I'm, I'm a broadcaster, a, a podcaster, and filmmaker. Um, many of my own gut health related issues. And after coming through that uh, with the advice of Julia Davies, I co founded the Gutology Project to help other people solve their own gut health issues. Uh, Julia is a nutritional therapist that uses functional medicine to help people with gut related issues she's a lecturer she's got lots of titles after her name but most importantly she's here in the studio and she's willing to talk all things gut health for the next hour or so Uh, this week what are we going to be talking about well the big thing for us is beyond the diagnosis ibs ibd constipation and diarrhea, a fascinating insight into what do these things actually mean. Uh, We're going to give you the latest news coming up in the gut health world this week. We're going to give you some top tips about what you can implement that's free and easy, that will have a big impact on your digestion. And we'll also touch on things like the FODMAP diet, which are getting lots of press at the moment. But first, I think it's important to talk about one of the probably most common terms that we hear when it comes to gut health, but, and it's such a broad title, most people get it diagnosed by the GP or self-diagnose it. What is actually IBS and can you do anything about it? I think that's a good place to start this week, Julia. Yeah,
1: okay. So uh, IBS stands for irritable bowel syndrome and it's one of those medical diagnoses that it covers a range of different presentations of the condition but um, it doesn't really specify um, in in terms of exactly how it presents itself so some people have quite extreme diarrhea and it's something that's affecting their life and has been to to be diagnosed you need to have it for about three months or so consistently Um, but they don't know why that is and other people diagnosed with IBS might just have constipation and they can't managed to go to the toilet, you know, maybe once a week or even longer in some cases so it's different presentations of the condition
0: So I remember in my early 20s when I, I, I'd come off some pretty serious antibiotics and this went on for quite some time and I was feeling really really unwell and my gut was all over the place and I went to the doctor and he said, oh it's just IBS, that was his, his exact terms, mm. there's and, and I think the thing that worries me now looking back in hindsight is don't worry, it's not bad for you lots of people have it and that was it
1: I think that's something that I've become really it's like a bugbear in in life because it's so common that you know imagine like an open plan office and someone in there is like all cramping up and oh it's really painful my IBS is really bad today and Sheila down the you know the aisle is like oh me too me too and it's just such a commonplace thing to have these gut symptoms that people then think it's okay actually and they think it's normal and it's not it's not normal so trying to actually encourage these people that there's something that you can do about it and you can actually fix it is actually something that I really want to get out there.
0: Right. So I think, I think this is probably the most important message we'll give across the whole of this project is that, and I remember the first time that I met you and I came in and I said, I've got all these problems. And you said, yeah, no problems. We can work that out. And I said, what do you mean work it out? You're like, we can, we can stop you having those problems. And I'd not been told that, for over a decade, and I think that's why this project, this Gutology project, is so important, because if you are listening and you have uh, digestive issues there is a solution and it can be changed is what we're trying to say.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think the, the thing is with the doctor, it's kind of a diagnosis that is given if if either after they've investigated to see if there's anything more ser- serious going on or they don't do that and they just say, well, it's probably just IBS, but get back to me if it doesn't sort of resolve. And so I think people don't, they're sort of told to just go, you know, it's IBS, don't worry about it or, you know, just learn to manage it or... You know, there's there's very little help given, actually, once you get the diagnosis of IBS. There's occasionally like um, we're probably going to talk about this later, but the GPs sometimes offer the FODMAPS diet. um, But then it's very much up to the patient themselves to then go and research that and find out if that can help them. And that in itself can have problems because it sends people down a road that they're not not really quite able to do by themselves. And then they get the wrong messages about it as well. And It doesn't ultimately fix the problem.
0: So when I talk to people who have IBS, the the, the common story is often, um, I I used to be absolutely fine. And then I got to whatever age and suddenly they came on and it's never been the same since. What would you say, what is common that would have happened along that journey that has got them to that point?
1: So quite often there's, there's like a trigger that happens that upsets your stomach. So for some people it might be food poisoning. It's like, oh, I was really sick and I was two days out and vomiting and... My gut has just never been the same since, and that was five years ago. You know, this is happens such a lot. So you get um, some kind of infective bacteria in the gut, and you might get rid of it, um, or you might get treatment for it, but then the disruption that that's caused on the microbiome um, really then sets you up for... Um, an unsettled gut from that point forward. So, you know, we're looking there. At what I try and always do in my practice is find out what the, what the cause is, what the trigger is, and if there's anything currently that's actually driving it as well. And that's a really important way to look at it because it's so often antibiotic use might be a trigger. It might be a really stressful episode or it might even be something like a wedding. Someone who's really intensely planning a wedding, for example, but just has that extra, you know, it's kind of a good stress, but still there. They might find that they get the... I was upset from that, but then it never settles. So, you know, sometimes once it goes over the edge, it's then hard to bring it back unless you're really making good interventions.
0: If you uh, are listening to this right now and that sounds quite familiar to you, you can go to gutology.co.uk where there's a whole host of articles and tips and explainers where you can go into things in more detail. But for somebody listening that does have those problems, the ideal advice would be find a great nutritionist that is registered with functional medicine ideally would be useful. Um, But people listening right now that A, can't afford that or B, live in an area where that's just not possible, there's no one nearby or they don't trust that individual, where do you begin to start? Yourself to start that journey towards improving those symptoms.
1: So when you're when you're trying to help yourself, you've got a massive advantage in that you know your body better than anybody. So actually, not not a bad place to start is start working with yourself in an objective way, if possible, and try and work it out. So rather than just thinking, "Oh, my tummy hurts" or "I've got this diarrhea all the time," just thinking, "Well, maybe I I suggest a fortnight of just observing what happens." So don't change anything. In that period of time, just carry on doing whatever you're doing, but make notes each day of what you're eating um, and what you're doing so that every time you do get IBS type symptoms, then you might be able to actually pinpoint something there that's triggering it. So it could be, you know, it's only happening when I do a presentation at work, for example. Or it doesn't seem to matter if I'm really stressed, that doesn't have an impact on it at all. But whenever I eat cheese or whenever I drink alcohol or, you know, there could be anything in the diet that could be triggering it as well. But I think a two week observation period would be a really powerful way to start because you're getting to know yourself and what it might respond to. And sometimes people can come up with a really clear direction then of what they need to do.
0: I think one of the most misunderstood things as well is when you're doing stuff like a food diary or you're trying to work out what is causing you problems, uh, and I really struggled with this as well, is it doesn't necessarily happen straight after you eat the food. So what, if you're getting symptoms, how, what is the sort of time delay that you should be expecting? So for example, if you wake up in the morning, you eat breakfast and 10 minutes later, you're feeling unwell. Could that be last night's food or because for me that's where it gets
1: complicated it is truly complicated though because um i think you know when you're just on your own and you're trying to manage it you sort of do the best you can in observing what what you think the triggers might be and i think you can get an instinct about what you really suspect um but sometimes reactions are immediate um, like you say you have some people say oh, i had porridge for breakfast and then had to rush to the loo can't eat porridge anymore it's actually is it the porridge or is that sending a trigger to get rid of something that was from yesterday's food that was upsetting the gut and actually it was just any food that then needed to give the signal to get get the the troublesome stuff out so um they, in terms of food reactions sometimes you can have um one say you have one egg but, and that's fine. You could have two eggs and that's fine. But if you have three eggs in a period of four days, then it tips you over the edge. So it's really complicated. Sometimes it's the accumulation of eating the same food again and again you have like a tolerance level of how many you can take and anything over that causes IBS symptoms. So it actually is not straightforward at all, but I think in terms of what you can, you can collect a lot of information by just looking at what is in your diet because what you then do is you think, okay, right, I suspect eggs then. What you do is take eggs out of your diet for about three or four weeks and see if your symptoms improve. You know, this is something that you can just do and then you put eggs back in again, scramble three or four eggs all in one go and see, right, does that have an aggravating for the next day or two
0: so we're saying that a bit of discipline do a food diary or I suppose one way you know if we're talking about somebody that is I mean really struggling it's causing a lot of stress in their life whether it's like terrible gas all the time or bloating or they feel lethargic all of those sorts of things Is there a way you can do it the opposite way round where you go, right, I'm going to go right back down to a bare bone, that's the elimination diet?
1: I'm a big, big fan of the elimination diet. It's really considered the gold standard. It's not easy to do, it's a challenge, but it's considered the absolute best way of identifying if there's any food triggers for you. So it is something that you can get information from our website on, but um, you can do it on your own um, in terms of you would take at least a minimum of three weeks to avoid all of the common triggers. So an elimination diet would generally involve removal of eggs, wheat, dairy, soya, sugar, caffeine, alcohol. You know, you would live a very... Very simple life for about three week period, perhaps longer. But it's the most interesting thing. I think I've only ever seen one person in my whole practice that has had no change on the elimination diet. Ordinarily, what would happen is first week they feel terrible because they're withdrawing all the things that they like. But then the second week, their symptoms start to change. And then by the third week, they're begging me, can I stay on the elimination diet forever because <laughs> I feel amazing and I feel, you know, best I've ever felt. And so it's really, it's powerful. So if there is any suspicion that the diet is, because a diet is not the only cause of IBS, but obviously it's a massive impact on it. So um, that is elimination diet is the gold standard way of really assessing what that might be.
0: And I think if I was going through it again, I think... I. I particularly like the idea of the elimination diet because it's like anything you, you with things like these they are so difficult if you if you're you have a certain lifestyle there's certain foods you like it feels a bit like punishment just like exercise mm-hmm. it's, it, it's it it hurts to do the exercise even though it makes you feel better but the thing for me about the elimination diet is you're almost guaranteed a small win mm. and that i think psychologically is so important yeah. that, okay, rough week, most people can handle that. But if in week two they just see a glimmer, mm-hmm. like the bloating stops yeah. or the nausea yeah. or the bad, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you can suddenly go, oh, okay, this is real. Yeah. Because there's so much information out there and you're told so much. You genuinely have to be sceptical. I think that's important in life. Yeah. And then when something physically changes, you can go, oh, okay, there is something going on in my gut here that's not right. But I think it's also important to say at that point, if you improve on the elimination diet, that's not, that is not the end answer.
1: That's not the answer. That is a, it's like, it's a scientific discovery process. It's not a diet. So we call it the elimination diet. I often, when I'm talking about it, call it the elimination programme because it's part of something, investigation. That's what it is. It's not something that you would you would cut out all of those foods permanently. Um, we want people to be able to eat a really varied diet and effectively eat what they want. Uh, you know, I always advocate a pretty healthy, unprocessed diet, but generally I want people to be able to eat out in a restaurant without completely panicking about it. So that's the end goal is to is to fix the gut. So that it can tolerate any foods. But to do that, we need to start identifying first what foods are aggravating it, because if we can identify that, then we can pick them out of the diet just for, you know, it might be a three month period, say, and just don't eat them, take the load off, take the pressure off. And then, you know, everything you're eating isn't actually upsetting you. And so your symptoms will be better in that period, but not completely. And then you need to actually fix the gut.
0: So later in the program, we're going to give you uh, the the elimination diet in a bit more detail and the FODMAP diet. We're going to talk a little bit more about that because a lot of people are now even being advised by their doctors to go on the FODMAP diet. Mm. And we'll talk about the benefits and also the potential perils. But right now at gutology.co.uk, you can read all of this and you can even access these diets and have a look through them. So I think that's that's um, important. Uh, While we talk about IBS, it's also important to talk about IBD because we hear these words getting thrown around all the time. What is the difference between going to the doctor and they say you've got IBS or going to the doctor and they say that you've got IBD?
1: Okay, they're really different conditions. Um, Very, very different um, uh, pathogenesis is what happens there. So... um, IBD stands for inflammatory bowel disease. Um, it's considered autoimmune now, um, and it's a process that involves the immune system. It involves inflammation, um, and it's like a, 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 it, it's, it's a disorder that can be it's got some organic changes that are happening to the bowel that you can actually see. So if I describe that in a bit more detail, so with IBS, they call it a functional disorder of the gut, i.e. like you put your cameras up and down and you can't see any change. There's no inflammation present, but that person is experiencing terrible diarrhoea on a daily basis, but there's nothing to see. So there's no organic change to the gut at all. That would then qualify it as IBS. If it's IBD, there's um, there's there's a, some kind of change to the structure of the gut in terms of the looking at the lining of the walls of the intestine. They become inflamed, they become swollen, they can sometimes become thicker, and you can get scar tissue and things like that. It's something that's actually changing fundamentally what the gut is looking like.
0: And when we talk about IBD, that that is the background to things like that Crohn's?
1: Crohn's and colitis. So ulcerative colitis um, is affecting just the colon, Um, hence the name colitis. Anyitis is an inflammation, so colitis is inflammatory disease of the colon. Crohn's disease is um, normally, now it can actually occur anywhere in the digestive tract, um, but quite often in the small intestine right at the end bit where it actually joins the large intestine. So if you've got an inflamed colon, you're not going to be able to absorb water. So the presentation of that condition is often really loose stools, not formed at all, very watery, because the water's not being absorbed back into your body. Whereas Crohn's disease, often the colon is actually quite healthy, um, not in all cases, but most. You know, in a classic case, say the colon is fine, so you can get a formed stool, or at least a semi-formed stool, because the inflammation is going on further up in the in the digestive tract. But then with Crohn's, you get a lot more malabsorption symptoms as well.
0: When we talk about IBS before, and I said to you, look, if people come to you with IBS, you say to them, look, you can find relief of symptoms and improve your to the point where you will be able to eat a a normal diet without bloating, without indigestion, without diarrhea, without constipation. When someone comes to you with IBD, what do you say to them? Because I have quite a few friends that have Crohn's disease and their advice that they're getting from their GPs is when you have a flare, eat more beige foods Mm -hmm. and wait for it to settle down, but there's not much that can be done about it. What what is your take on that?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's one of my favourite conditions. If I should have a favourite disease, then inflammatory bowel disease is definitely one of them, because it's it's a very complex condition, and but there's so much that you can do. And I think with the with the complexity of it's you know it's autoimmune in origin, it's inflammatory in the bowel itself. You've got absorption problems of nutrients. You've got lots of other like fatigue often goes hand in hand with it as well, um, and it's quite disabling in terms of how it can affect you in your daily life like what we do is we 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 look at them in a very holistic way in terms of what's driving that condition and what the pre-susceptibilities are and trying to literally come at it from every single avenue we can get a stability in that person and then once we have stability for a period of time we can actually measure that stability by um uh, there's levels that we can measure privately that are actually matching the levels that you can get in the nhs as well something called cow and we can use that as a measure of stability and if we get them stable for say six months then it's a good conversation with the consultant to say should we trial maybe like you know one of one less medication to see, you know, see if we can um, go forward without having that suppressant effect. And, you know, there's, it's a complex situation and, you know, it's only, it must be done in conjunction with the consultant because it's the prescribing doctor that's um, the only person that's able to um, adjust the medication. But it's been done and it's, what I find is that, Speaking to gastroenterologists, they can be first, this is the way to do it and this is the only thing that will control a flare, but they can be falling over their seats, you know, knocked out by the fact that they see their patients improving, not having flares and then not taking medication for it. Um, So we're not allowed to talk about like the word cure. We always talk about managing condition and things like that. And we don't want to, you know, say... You know, we can we can cure this. Everyone can be well again. But I have seen many, many cases in my practice when, you know, people come in and they can't work. They can't live. They can't sleep because they're getting up for the toilet all the time. You know, that's really, really terrible. And we get into a point of stability and um, then they can go on and it doesn't interfere with their life.
0: Uh, You can read more about this online. Just head to gutology.co.uk for more articles. Each week we delve into the gut health news to see new studies that are coming out. If you're listening to this, you're just looking to optimise your gut or it might make interesting reading or even just what the future of uh, gut health might look like based on the studies that are going on right now. Um, Transit time in the news this week sounds a bit dull Really? Doesn't it? How quickly stuff passes through you. Not for you, Julia, maybe. maybe that's quite exciting uh, these days. Uh, but one um, supplement that came up was uh, psyllium husk. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Because it's spelt with a P. Spelt
1: with a P. Silent P. Yeah, psyllium. Psyllium husk. Yeah. So just, just start
0: with, because I've read a lot about, I've seen psyllium husk knocking around, but yeah. I've, I've never taken it. I don't really know what it is. So let's yeah. just start with what it is before we get on to the trial.
1: So it's like it's like the ground up husks of a, of a plant um, and what it's providing for you is um, fibre and it's got a proportion of mainly soluble fibre and some insoluble fibre as well and the combination of the two actually can really help um, to improve the transit time. So transit time is the time it takes for your food to pass all the way through your guts. Um, and in constipation, we always talk about transit time. You know, if your transit time is seven days, that's not right. So um, anything that can actually speed up the transit time can be useful. But with um, the different types of fibre that psyllium's got in it, um, the soluble fibre kind of forms like a gel in the intestines and it can help just almost like sweep out the, like the lining of the intestines and collect stuff on its way, and it retains water as well. So it can help give a fluid to the stool, one of the problems in constipation is when everything dries out and it just moves so slowly and it just gets stuck like rocks inside the intestines. So the soluble fibre actually helps to retain the water and make it go through more more smoothly.
0: So this study was more about looking at people supplementing with psyllium yeah. husk who have constipation. Yeah. Because I'm assuming if you have watery stools or diarrhoea, that is not a supplement you want to be taking.
1: Yeah, no, no. Well, the thing is, actually, it might work for diarrhoea too because it it actually has a, a binding action as well. Yes, it's retaining some water, but if the water is in the bowel, it will bind that water rather than drag more water out of the body. So it can actually help bind together. And because it's also got some insoluble fibre in there, it's really beneficial because that gives bulk to the stool too. So if you've got watery diarrhoea, then it can help on that level. So it's quite a, it could potentially be useful for both constipation and diarrhoea.
0: But that's not necessarily the most interesting thing about this study. It was a mm-hmm. small-scale study. They put people on psyllium husk um, supplements. Yeah. They saw an improvement in people with constipation who were having faster transit times. Yeah. But it's more interesting what this indicates, right?
1: Mm, mm. Well, I think part of what, what came up in the study was the fact that it they, they examined the microbiomes of the people that were taking the psyllium. So they had the control group that didn't have constipation and they had the constipation group. And when they took the psyllium husks, it altered the microbial composition in the gut. But it didn't alter the microbial composition in the gut of somebody that wasn't constipated. So it was a small study. I think there was maybe sort of less than 20 people involved, but it was randomized controlled trial, which is a really, really good type of study. And what that's indicating is that the microbiome is, needs to be altered in order to relieve the constipation. And that's the part of the mechanism of how it works. So we've always known psyllium is fiber. It's a combination of soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. But the, the effect that it's having on the bacteria in the gut is then having the effect on the constipation. So it could actually be working through a different mechanism as well.
0: So when we get on to uh, the two topics of today, which I think are interesting to talk about, one of them is constipation, which we're talking about there, and the other one is diarrhea. I think that moves nicely on from that trial into people listening to this, even if you're just looking to optimize your gut health, I think generally people have a leaning Towards one or the other. Mm. If people, um, even if you have quite a healthy digestive system, I think people are more prone either to at times have constipation or at times have diarrhea. And obviously, it's a big spectrum. Some people are at the extreme end, and mm. some people at the other. So, I think it's really, really interesting to talk about. Firstly, constipation. What is happening and what can you do to improve that i think we'll start there because phillium husk is a great lead Mm. into that Mm.
1: okay so if it was simple then there'd be an easy answer so it's it's actually it's like an accumulation of lots of different things that are going on so in constipation the problem is things are going too slowly through the gut so that could be because you're eating the wrong sort of food, you're not eating enough fibre in your diet. If you don't have enough fibre, you can't create a bulk in your stool. And what that means is that when it's getting through to the latter stages of your intestinal tract, it doesn't actually move along very well because how you're helping it move along is by stretching, just very slightly stretching the intestinal wall as the bulk is forming and then it moves it along. So if you haven't got enough fibre in your diet and sort of the standard Western diet um it's called the sad diet standard american diet but it's what we have here in the uk as well it's called a sad diet which is a useful acronym because it is quite sad um, but it's very low in fiber generally We're not eating as much fiber so as we should be just sidetrack quickly yeah
0: how much fiber should we be eating a day
1: um, something in the region of about 30 grams of fibre.
0: And what does that look like? So, I mean, let, and let's be realistic here. Let's, yeah. like, not magazine covers. Yeah. How could the average Joe yeah. get that into their diet?
1: Okay, so fibre comes from largely vegetables. Um, You get fibre in grains as well. So a lot of the sort of, fi- there's a lot of dietary opinion out there at the moment. And there's probably not, if you were to go into it, Into a shopping centre, say, and ask every member of the public who walk past you, do they know about this diet, that diet, that diet? Like everybody knows about all the different diets ketogenic, paleo diet, FODMAPs diet, elimination diet. There's so many diets out there. And one of the things that is often eliminated is grains because grains are bad, they turn to sugar. You know, there's lots of quite kind of misconceptions, but actually grains do provide quite a lot of fibre for you. So um, sometimes a lot of weight loss plans are aimed at eliminating carbs. That's not necessarily a good thing for your gut, and it can cause constipation.
0: Right, so a low-carb diet can, can lead to it constipation. Can, it can,
1: but if you were doing it well, and if there's not, it's not saying a low-carb diet is bad, and sometimes I recommend low-carb diets quite frequently. It's just knowing then you need to replace the fibre that, that in that would normally bring. So vegetables it comes back to, but people don't really seem in the sort of Western world, they don't really seem to like to eat a lot of vegetables. Um So what is it? Give it give us some good fibre hacks then. Like, yeah. okay, I've I'm I'm
0: Joe, I come to you and um I've got loads of digestive symptoms. Yeah. I'm not happy about them. Yeah but i I eat with my family, and we we only have so much budget, and we all eat the same food. So just give me some fiber that's okay. realistic for me. I'm not okay. going to be doing stir fries five times a week. Yeah, what can I do?
1: All right, so porridge would be a great thing to have in the morning for breakfast, and I've got an awesome one. Um, and it's possibly something that's not there. Not the most well-known food, but it's readily available in supermarkets now. Is chia seeds? Have you heard of chia seeds? Yes. Yeah. So yeah.
0: They, they come in. You can get them in every sort of health food shop
1: and supermarkets now as well. And right, they okay. they are like. They are such a good fibre source. And what I would recommend is that you just have um, a few tablespoons of chai seeds and soak them overnight, maybe in some coconut milk or, you know, whatever whatever fluid you like and and have it like it sort of forms like a, a kind of yogurty texture. And you just have that the next day and that'll get you large amounts of fibre. So that's a really, really useful thing too. And also because they come in like they come dried, the seeds. So you can just have a box of them in your... Cupboard for months on end, and if you feel that you're low in fiber, you just soak a few of the chia seeds and eat them. And yeah, wonderful way of getting the fiber in.
0: I think like the the big thing you know with this gutology project as well is 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 tips like that where you can't take somebody from zero to hero. You can't bang somebody on a paleo diet. No, you can't suddenly send somebody keto. But tiny little hacks like that where you know we say just just try putting that into your diet, just a couple of teaspoons of chia seeds every single day, and it might have a real improvement if you do suffer from constipation. Um, The only uh, thing that we might be wary of with that is that... um, Not everyone may tolerate a quick increase in fibre. Is that right?
1: Yeah, like any change like that, like if you've got a really volatile gut that just reacts to everything, then you want to make even the beneficial changes slow ones. So just doing a little bit at a time, you know, just making one to two changes a week and just really observing yourself and monitoring how you're responding to that
0: okay so one of the big things with constipation then is increasing your fiber will have a big thing in conjunction with that probably increasing your water intake yeah
1: so if you don't if you're not very hydrated and you're increasing your fiber what all it will do is it will literally like form bulk in your intestinal tract and it won't have the fluid to take it through and that is a problem so So you get hard stools you'll get hard stools so fiber can go wrong Um, you need to always have, um, you know, an extra, you know, pint of water with fiber supplements.
0: Now, when people, um, some people will do this, they'll increase their fiber, they'll increase their water, and they're still not getting relief. So what would you be thinking at this point?
1: Okay, so we go back to the, the basics there of what, you know, if we don't know anything about this person yet, we don't know what their triggers are, what we sort of, automatically go to is what is what is not functioning correctly in their gut so more often than not it's their stomach acid isn't high enough it's not high enough and if at the you know the stomach is quite early on in the digestive tract so if that is not functioning correctly then that impacts everything downstream of it so you can get sluggishness that can be completely relieved by um, increasing the stomach acid again
0: and there are tips on how to increase your stomach acid right now at Yeah. But off the top of our head, yeah. certain things you can do with your diet. Apple cider apple vinegar. Apple cider
1: vinegar is brilliant. Yeah. A bit yeah. of that
0: just before you eat. Yeah. Yeah. Um and then in in serious circumstances where it's really really low yeah. um, uh, there are supplements that you can take.
1: Yeah and there's a really easy straightforward test that you can do at home as well to actually establish whether your stomach acid is sufficient or not and that can be a real eye opener as to are you just slightly deficient or are you absolutely on the floor deficient with stomach acid and so yeah that's something that you can do at home um, the only sort of contraindication to it is when people might have a expected stomach ulcer or gastritis. You know, if there's actually inflammation in the stomach, the last thing you want to do is pour acid on it. But the acid that you get in the supplements is like a drop in the ocean in terms of what you're meant to be producing naturally. And I think, again, people are quite scared of acid, You know, what's the first thing you think if you'd never heard of? Well, I just supplement with some acid. That doesn't feel quite right. Acid burns. You think high school chemistry, but actually the if you don't have the acid in your stomach, the rest of your digestive tract does not work properly. So in in probably most if not all cases of constipation that I see the first thing I would do is assess the stomach acid because if you don't get that right no matter what other interventions you might make that might affect the microbes or um, the fluid intake anything it just is not it's not the trigger that you need to get the transit through the gut.
0: So what is the at home test that you can do?
1: So we'll put details of it on the website but um, it's actually when you can start taking um, just one capsule of something like 500 milligram of um, hydrochloric acid.
0: Which sounds pretty scary. Sounds pretty scary. I've, yeah. I've done this as well because yeah. uh, that was one of my major things was really, really low stomach acid. So I can say it sounds scary. It's not. It's no. These capsules, they, they're just standard, like almost like a paracetamol or yeah. an antibiotic pill or whatever you would get. Yeah. But I remember really daunted trying this process out because I thought... I'm swallowing hydrochloric acid. What's going to happen? Yeah, but actually, for me, not a lot. <laughs> yeah. So,
1: well, that's the, that's the thing. So, if you had enough acid in your stomach, so you'd always do the test when you were when you were really hungry, waiting for your dinner. So, just as you're plating up your dinner, your largest meal, your stomach acid should be really juicy. You know, it should be producing loads. So, if you take an acid capsule then, and it actually has like a discomfort, like a burning heat sensation in your stomach then you don't need it because actually that's topped up your acid level too much. But, you know, in, in your case, I think you took, you know, several capsules and couldn't feel any difference at all. And that's indicating that there's just no stomach acid yeah. being produced. Yeah, so
0: I, I think this is a good point, actually. So I, um, I think some people supplement with, uh, uh, the pills I had were 1,000 am I right in saying 1,000 milligrams?
1: I, I without R oh, for something, top of my head, like that. I don't know. something like and that. yeah.:
0: I had to eventually jack up to about 1.5 or six of these pills. This is not recommending anybody go and do this, but um, it was probably one of the cornerstone moments in my recovery was literally overnight. I suddenly felt like a different person. And there were telltale signs when I looked back, like whenever I ate meat, I felt very nauseous. Yeah. I had a lot of belching. Yeah. I had constant all of those sorts of things. Yeah. And as soon as I took these supplements, it was like, uh, like the blindfold being taken off slightly on the yeah. sort of digestive system. So go online to gutology.co.uk and read about stomach acid because even small improvements can have mm. drastic uh, improvements on your overall uh, digestion. So from constipation over to diarrhoea, different ends of the spectrum, mm. um, what is so different about what's going on with people that have diarrhoea versus people that have constipation? Because there'll, there'll be a lot of people listening as well who who maybe just occasionally get, you know, just uh, some – some. I know a lot of my friends, it's always a bit of a running joke, that they are occasionally, if they have a bit too much coffee or whatever – they they're quickly off to the toilet. They're absolutely fine in their day to day digestion, but they lean towards it. Yeah. What is actually going on?
1: So there's there's if you think of the absolute basics of diarrhea, like you know you get that suddenly a sudden urgency to go to the loo and something's trying to get out. <laughs> So the heat. Yeah. <laughs> so something's irritated your gut, or there's something infective in your gut, or the nerves, because your your nervous system, you've got more nerves in your gut than you have in your spinal cord. It's, you know, huge nervous system. And if you're stressed or worried or anxious, um, first thing it can do is trigger your gut to just let everything go. So would you say that when it
0: comes to anxiety and stress? It's more likely to be symptomatic in diarrhoea than it is constipation. No,
1: no. I'd say I'd I'd actually be completely on the fence of... Half go one way, half go the other way. So there's a lot of individual differences that might lean you towards one or the other. But the thing is, when you're, you know, if you get suddenly anxious, then that can it can be like an irritant with the nerves to your gut, and it just lets everything go. But on the other hand, what happens if you kind kind of get stuck in that state is, have you heard of a fight or flight state? Yeah. So when you're kind of stuck in the stress state and your body's just like ready to, um, it's ready to either fight or run away um and this kind of it's this state of your nervous system is it completely shuts down all of the secretions to your gut and it shuts down the peristalsis in your gut. So the peristalsis is the movement along the intestinal tract. So if you're stuck in fight and flight, we might get initial diarrhoea, but then you end up with constipation because you're just literally inhibiting the movement of anything along the digestive tract. But also it's shutting down the secretions as well. So your stomach acid will drop in stress. number one cause of low stomach acid is stress. Wow. Um, Then your... um, or the other gut secretions, it's like in the stress state, your body is like in a survival mode and your body doesn't need to digest and absorb nutrients. It needs to just you know run away from the imminent danger so it's like an evolutionary thing that now a lot of people in our society are completely stuck in that fight or flight state all the so, time all the time yeah we've got a huge amount of pressure on on our lives and you know society expectations of things lack of community there's a lot of different there's, there's a lot of different reasons why modern life is quite stressful compared to what it might have been 100 years ago different types of stresses Um, But a lot of people and probably everybody that walks through my door is stuck in a chronic fight or flight state to begin with. And that's one thing we really must tackle because it just shuts down the intestinal tract, shuts down your digestive processes. And actually, really interestingly, you're when you're in a fight or flight state, you need all of your nutrients to um be ready in your bloodstream, so your blood sugar goes up, which can have health consequences, you need your muscles to have all the blood supply so that you can just you know you've got the energy to um, to deal with that imminent situation. So the blood supply is actually diverted away from your gut, to your muscles, to your heart, to your brain. so your your gut literally, it's not having the juices that it should be producing it's not moving as it should be moving. And for any nutrient that's trying desperately to get into your body, the blood supply isn't even there to receive it because it's gone off somewhere else, literally shunts the blood vessels away from your gut.
0: Isn't that terrifying that stress actually could be having those detrimental long-term, could be creating yeah. long-term health issues because you're literally malabsorbing yeah. because your body is so fraught yeah. all the time. Yeah. Um. So uh, things like, we, we've spoken about this before, exercise in movement but processing stress as well and we'll put some stuff up on the website i've got some really great links to some amazing books you can read mindfulness all those sorts of stuff again yeah. gutology.co.uk so when uh so stress is a large part of that where that fight or flight either evacuates or uh seizes up yeah. so could be constipation or diarrhea yeah. Yeah. but people that get diarrhea diarrhea regularly what is happening along the way that is causing that
1: so it's likely going to be some kind of dysbiosis and that's the word for an imbalance in the bacteria that's growing in the gut so it could be well it could be bacteria it could be fungal it could be parasite it could be all kinds of things basically whatever the community is of living stuff inside the gut that's really normally out of balance when you have diarrhea so it could be and it it, it would depend when it started you know if it started from that holiday in Egypt yeah you're thinking yeah it's probably something more infective, but um it could be just something that's like a chronic development of an imbalance and that could be due to diet you know so eating like a really similar diet so eating the same foods every day of the week that kind of thing that could ultimately end in diarrhea because you're just then starting to have more dominant strains of not necessarily the right types of bacteria in your gut
0: a lack of diversity
1: yeah that can lead to it yeah yeah so um yeah there's lots of different pictures of what causes the diarrhea um and lots of different ways to tackle it as well but normally it's action of the nervous system through you know stress um, but it involves a rebalancing of the microbiome and then that will fix it um, sometimes and if somebody was having diarrhoea to the point of dehydration, things like that is very, very serious. Um, you know, the GP would probably be involved and they'd be undergoing those sort of tests. And I would at the same time order a stool test and make sure that we weren't missing anything in terms of something really infective in the gut that needed because you can get chronic infections in the gut. Um, They're not causing you to vomit or anything like that, but it's just, you know, every so often it tips you over the edge and you get this quite debilitating diarrhoea. So we need to identify what that is. And then we can then go ahead at some kind of programme to get rid of it.
0: So find a a functional doctor or a a qualified nutritionist and work with them to get a stool test done because that will give them an insight into what is going on inside you. These are very different tests necessarily that your GP are doing. They can be quite expensive, but what they will do is give an incredible picture quite quickly for that nutritionist who is hopefully qualified and trained to say, ah, I can see a dominant strain here, or yeah. I can see an overgrowth of this, and you can actually see that on paper.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the stool tests are so good these days; they're so comprehensive that you're looking at um, you're looking at not only what's growing in there, but you're looking at you know the bile that's been secreted from your liver. You're looking at the um, the effects of the acid and what impact that might have had. It's looking at lots of infective agents, lots of inflammatory things. Um, there's just it gives you a whole broad picture of What's going on? Hundreds of different markers that you can then put together, so it's a really useful thing to do. But you know, price wise, you're looking in the region of somewhere between, um, around maybe just under 200 up to about 350. That's the kind of ballpark figure we're looking at for stool tests. But then, if somebody's really unwell, that is money worth saving up for because. Um, yeah, absolute best data you can get from that and it really shortens the recovery. If you can identify something, I'd say that's really, really more useful. It's useful for any type of gut disorder. But if somebody's really debilitated with diarrhea and they're literally de- dehydrated and, you know, in that horrid state, then it's worth its weight in gold.
0: Um, If you're listening to this and that is you, you don't have access to a great nutritionist, you're not really sure what to do next, Uh, not just reading the articles online, but you can also contact us via the gutology.co.uk page and uh, you can ask questions there. Uh, All right. Every week, uh, a top tip that you can try. It should be, uh, the rules are very simple. It needs to be free-ish, something that you can do at home. Um, So this week, uh, we're going to recommend... Uh, Well, let's think about what we've done over the first two episodes. The first one was eat three hours before you go to bed. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. And does genuinely have a massive impact on your digestion. Uh, Last week we did. um, uh, What did we do last week? Come on, you've got to be better than me here. So we did eat three hours before you go to bed. Uh,
1: oh, mouthwashing with uh, oil with pulling. Oil that pulling. was it. Very good. Yeah. Oil pulling.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and um, that's a big one. Yeah. This week, uh, it's all about um, hydration and moving.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, drink and move. That's sim- simple as that, because if, you, if you're dehydrated, you're not going to get your stool formed properly. Um, so that is, that is underestimated. Everyone knows you should drink, but actually... Even though people know it and it's common sense, there's a lot of people that don't drink enough at all. Or if they're drinking just coffee and tea, they're not actually really contributing a great deal to fluid intake.
0: Just going into that in a bit more detail then, how, say, um, uh, a standard glass of water How, yeah. how oh God we've told this so many times but what's yeah. your take on that what you should be drinking each day? So
1: it really depends because it, you get fluid out of your food as well so like if you're having a soup for a lunch big bowl of soup then that's obviously going to contribute some fluid too so um, and it depends purely on your body size what you need and what you don't want is to have a fixed I must drink two litres I must drink this enormous bottle by the end of my day um, you actually might find that it's too much for you depending on what else you're doing but if you're exercising you go to the gym you might even need more than that so it's purely i'm not i don't really like to say you should all have this much because it does vary but i think in terms of like glass of water if that was the only drink you were having so you weren't having any tea coffee juices stuff then um, say eight glasses of water would be really nice throughout the day
0: and um what about around mealtimes and eating because this is always Mm. a real uh topic of uh conversation should you be drinking as soon as you eat should you be allowing a bit of time
1: what Yeah. So I I advise having your drinks separate from your meals because what you're doing when you're if you drink, if if you have have a drink when you're having your lunch, you're diluting your stomach acid. So if you've got digestive problems, you're kind of crippling yourself from the start because what stomach acid you are producing. um, And the reason I say is I'm talking generally, but most people I see do actually have a low stomach acid. It's a really, really common thing. So you're diluting that even further, which can then inhibit your digestion. So I would normally say leave at least an hour before and after your meal. Um, And then you're allowing your digestion to go ahead, but then you're hydrating in the, in the the bits in between.
0: Uh, We're also talking about movement as well. Um, are you saying that you need to be running five kilometers every day to transform your (laughs) digestive health? Like what, what sort of movement contributes to?
1: Okay. So exercise is one of those things. Like, you know, if you feel, I always ask people, Oh, how much exercise do you get? Absolutely none. Okay. Right. Tell me about your week and what you do. And then that tells you how much exercise they're getting. So exercise is not just gym based. You don't have to pay a membership to a gym to get exercise. Hoovering your house is exercise. Um, walking around the block at work, um, at lunchtime say that is exercise and
0: that will um, actually help your digestion.
1: Yeah, it will because when you're sedentary your gut gets sedentary too it's as simple as that you right. know you need to you need to in, improve the movement. Um, just literally going out for a walk can actually really help stimulate your bowels um so you know anything though it doesn't have to be walking it could be it could be swimming it could be doing that like like me this morning the mad dash to the score run (laughs) a good (laughs) five minute jog there um you know there's there's lots of different ways to do it but just moving so even just at the end of the day stretching your body can really help and um certain if you're when you're moving most movements that you do are moving your spine and when you do that it's kind of massaging the intestinal tract so doing like twisting and making sure that you're not too sort of rigid all the time you know just running on a treadmill say actually you're not really moving your spine are you so that in terms of gut exercise it's probably yeah it's getting your blood flowing and it's good for so your you heart. could argue but
0: that yoga is, is actually better than necessarily going for yeah, a run actually
1: yeah yeah because it's really getting it's helping the organs it helps the blood supply freely around the organs and helps things just get nourished better
0: um, as we uh, come to sort of wrap up this week's episode, there's, there's a lot going. There's a lot going on here, but I, I also think is even if you're looking to sort of optimize your gut health, it's so great to have a broader understanding of the extremes as well, and also if certain people are listening, and we've we've touched w- for what it might feel like briefly on your topic. Go online to the website, gutology.co.uk. We're creating uh, monthly hangouts where you'll actually be able to interact with Julia and ask her questions. Uh, You can become um, a part of this. It's really easy. Just jump onto the website. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram and and all of the rest of it. But just to sort of summarise this week, the two things that I think came up that are good to finish on are... The FODMAP diet and the elimination diet. So many people would have heard a lot about this, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but just briefly, let's just touch on the FODMAP diet and exactly what it is.
1: Okay, okay. So, do you know what the FODMAP diet stands for?
0: Uh, Okay, you put me on the spot here. So, fermentable. Yeah. Oli.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's basically fermentable sugars, fermentable oligo, dye, monosaccharides and polyols. So that thing, you don't have to know what that means. It basically means fermentable sugars in the diet. So things that are going to be consumed and then trigger a sort of bacterial overgrowth in your small intestine. So these, um, if you remove all of these things and there's lists um, on our website of what the FODMATS foods are, Foods are. Then you remove those things from your diet, and often symptoms can improve, and they do quite quickly. So within two weeks, you can see an improvement in the four months' diet. If you don't see an improvement after three weeks, it's not the right thing for you. And I think that's the that's the thing is. Knowing what to do and then knowing that it might not be right for you is probably the most useful message because if you try something, FODMAP's for IBS, and you have IBS and FODMAP's doesn't work, it might work for the next person, but there's something else going on for you. But it's, a, it's not a bad place to start, but what I would recommend is that it's there to stabilise the condition, but then you need to fix it afterwards.
0: Yes, that's certainly a mistake I made. I, I found the FODMAP diet... Um, and it brought me great relief to my symptoms and I probably stayed on that for six or seven years. And just to give you an idea if you never heard about it before, it's removing things like gluten, but also, um, garlic, onions, uh, any kind of sweet, uh, insoluble, uh, no, not insoluble, but certain sugar, like, uh, things like guar gum yeah. and sweeteners. Uh, that are in products mm. and stuff like that. And I found amazing relief. But again, I think the thing is about that, it's a it's a temporary thing to stabilize you so that you can start to mm. repair the gut. And that's the bit that I didn't do mm. until five, six, seven years later. And I think the, the thing that, for just from a personal perspective that I would stress as well, is that once I addressed, the fodmap diet was great, but it wasn't necessarily addressing mm. the issues that were going on. Once I did that, now I have a diet where I eat garlic, mm. onions, which are really good for you mm. and beneficial because I imagine with the FODMAP diet, you are missing out mm. on certain. You
1: miss benefits as well. A lot of the fodmap foods are quite healthy. So um, I think I, I think, you know, to be on it for as long as you were is, is quite a significant period of time and it must feel very um, difficult You know, if somebody says, oh, do you want to meet on Friday night and let's have a pub dinner? You say, oh, how am I going to manage that? You know, is it a FODMAT friendly pub? (laughs) (laughs) Which actually, believe it or not, is there's a few restaurants. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's difficult and it's limiting. And I think, like you said, it it was good for you and it maintained things to a sensible level in terms of symptoms, but it never fixed it. And it still left you with a really limited um, experience of eating for quite a substantial time.
0: Yeah, I think and I think as we sort of start to wrap up this week's episode, I think that the the FODMAP diet, I think is great and it can bring a lot of relief for people, but it really should be used as a temporary thing to then look into the bigger issues. And if you're unsure, it's a great place to start. But I really do encourage you to reach out to a nutritionist that is near to you. Or if you don't have that information, reach out to us via the Gutology website and you can start to get some more advice from there. We also spoke about the elimination diet as well, which is kind of easier and does exactly what it says on the tin. You're stripping out almost all the foods. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's known as the chicken and broccoli diet, chicken, broccoli and brown rice. And that's it, really. So, you know, there's a lot of vegetables that you can eat um, and, you know, you can have you you can It it's not. It's not too painful, actually, to do it um, once you get your head around it. And it's the committing at the beginning that's the issue because you can't, the purpose of it is actually any kind of residues of that food need to go completely. So if your immune system is reacting to certain foods, it might be making antibodies against it. So we need those antibodies to completely diminish to know if that's a trigger food, because sometimes you eat the food, the antibodies might be in circulation for 20 days. So you need to actually have all of that out of your system So that's why you need, you know, what you do for two days makes no difference. You need to have it at least three weeks. The most I would do is six weeks. And that would just be really if I was observing that we needed to push it a little bit to see how they would change.
0: And I think that, you know, we read a lot of articles in the press as well as people going on like meat only diets or going on these really severe restricted diets and having you know, uh, being almost um, uh, it becomes like a, a religion around it. Of this solved all of my problems, so I'm absolutely great. But actually, what is happening there now? What I'm slowly understanding, in my limited knowledge, is yes, you're removing all of the triggers. But that is not going to necessarily repair. If the microbiome needs to be this incredibly diverse place, you almost, yes, maybe need to sort of rake out the garden and clear everything out. But then you've got to start putting stuff back in to get to a place because long term, and I'd be really interested in seeing these people on the meat diets of their diversity, their bloods, all of those different sort of stuff. Because I imagine long term, it could be very detrimental.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, the elimination diet, the FODMATS diet, I would consider that stage one of possibly about five stages. So you don't just do stage one and then go on to live your life. You do stage one and then... You go on to stage two, which, as you say, start replenishing stuff in the gut. You start seeing what's missing. Have you got enough acid? Have you got a gut lining that's completely, uh, you know, worn away? Do we need to replace that as well? And we look at different things, and then we start looking at the gut bacteria and how is that changing and what do we need to do there? You know, and it goes on to do that. And then the sort of the end stages of this whole process is then looking at how can we prevent it from occurring again? Because same person, same existence, There's a reason it began in the first place. We need to make sure we know what those reasons are so it doesn't happen again. And then then you've got a sustainable change. And that's what we're looking for.
0: You can start your journey online, head to the station website. There's a lot of information. We could talk for hours about this, but over the sort of six episodes that we're doing, really season one is just about touching on a bit of everything and helping people get a bit of a better understanding of what gut gut health is, what it means for your overall health and genuinely the big message is there is stuff that can be done about it. And for me, that is really, really exciting and a really important message to sort of get out to people that just because you're suffering and maybe someone has told you that's the way it is, that's not necessarily the end of the story. It could be the beginning of what your journey is to improving that so head online to gutology.co.uk and you can chat with our expert team and we'll be back next week for episode four we'll see you then